The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So Very Wrong About Games is the name of the program, and we talk about board games here. Surprising, I know. We're on the summer schedule. Not sure if we talked about this, but we're going to be not talking about a feature game, but instead just our topic today, which is how big should your board collection be? We're also going to be talking about the game we played, we reviewed last year, which is City of Kings, games we played this week and news, and why it really doesn't matter. I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. Hello. How are you, How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? So, the game we played last year, Mark, City of Kings. I am actually eager to play this again, even though we don't have it in our collection. It did some very interesting things with map movement and the way it did, uh, you know, actually like a sort of like a dungeon crawler character building, but with resource gathering. So it was kind of interesting. And I am I am eager to play it again. It was interesting. It's one of those near misses that I always feel a, a, a tinge of regret for. I'm probably less enthusiastic about it than you are. Every time I see it in a store or mentioned online or something and I see pictures of that giant, big, beautiful box and the lovely artwork, I always think, oh, that's great. Maybe I should... Oh, wait, no, I've already played that a bunch of times and thought that it was a near miss. So we haven't played it since we reviewed it. It has indeed left our collective collection, as mentioned, and I, you know, I've, I'm definitely over most Overland Adventure-themed games, and I think that City of Kings, you're right, was more interesting than many, uh, but not quite interesting enough to continuously hold my attention. But I'm glad you're enthusiastic about it, so if, uh, if we ever have a chance to play it again, maybe we will. Did we ever win it? I'm, I don't think, I don't remember if we actually won a game. I think we won. Maybe I won. Maybe. Maybe I won when you weren't around. Maybe. All right, so that was the game we reviewed last year, City of Kings, by... Frank West and the City of Games. Thank you very much. Now, on to the games that we played this week. It was a... I had one huge day, so I've got actually stuff to talk about. Trick Shot. Mark's already talked about Trick Shot. If you've ever played Blood Bowl, if you love Blood Bowl, you will love this game called Trick Shot. It takes out... All the tediousness that is in Blood Bowl, as in, is this guy on his back or his front, or is this a tackle zone or not a tackle zone? It takes all the, you know, blocking paths, doing your safest moves first, getting that out of the way. All of those key elements of Blood Bowl and and boils them down to this fantastic little hockey game. And I can't wait for it to come out. It's on Kickstarter right now. It has... X number of days left, which I meant to look up more on that later. And that's, that's trick shot. It has some fantastic figures. We talked about how it's just a, 
I guess you can say a light upgrade to get them painted, but it all depends on how you define what light is. For painted figures, I feel it's a very light uh, monetary increase. Yeah, it's only $20, and uh, it's tough to tell. The early samples look great. It's going to be up on Kickstarter for the next couple of days. Uh, so if you're hearing this and you're at all interested, I encourage you to go check it out. And I've been playing the prototype that was sent to us by uh, Wolf Designer and Archim Nichapurov a lot. And it's really not my style of game. It's mostly a, a kind of a spatial, abstract, puzzly, tactical thing with a sports theme, neither of which normally does anything for me, but I just, I love Trickshot. It's got this wonderful push-your-luck element and this marvelous system of, of gambit and thrust and parry overlaid on top of all of this, and it is so quick and so engaging and so accessible. Trickshot really seems to be a winner, even if on the face of it, it doesn't sound like it's something up your alley. I encourage you to go take a, take a look. And uh, although it has not has not been released yet, we are very much looking forward to the final components, which hopefully will be very nice. But it's tough to tell early days yet. But the past designs by Wolf Design, and namely Warpgate and Guards of Atlantis, have been very, very good in terms of components. So I'm at least optimistic. I'm going to shoehorn another quick one in here. Just because you talked about prototypes and we sort of made up a game of this llama. And I just want to get it out there quickly because it's on the top of the hotness list. And I just want to make sure people don't go too crazy about it because it's really not much of a game. So it, we didn't, no, we didn't play Llama. I, allow me to clarify what we played. We played Wrath of the Appliances, Rise of the Killer Cameras. Gotcha. Cameras with a K. This is a retheme a la Cult of the Cockroach King uh, when I w- had to cobble together a version of Don't Mess with Cthulhu with components from other games. I used a deck of Bargain Hunter, which consists of weirdly creepy anthropomorphic appliances, for the Reiner Knizia Push Your Luck game called Llama, which has been nominated for the SDJ. And so we played it with those components, and... I'm just saying, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's really not much of a game there. It's like you're looking at your hand, and you're obviously going to play, you know, the cards that, you know, it comes to around to you, you're going to play the cards in your hand... The only gaming part of it that I could see through the few games that we did play is when you're going to, like, fold down the cards you have and try to take as as less of a hit as you can. And that that's all there is to it. There might be a strategy about, you know, looking at your hand and increasing the number early, even though you can play your lower cards to stop other people from playing. But So, so it's a game where ugh. points are bad. And numbers in your hand are worth points. But one of the things that I think might possibly reveal itself to be slightly more clever is at the end of a hand, whatever cards you have left are worth their value, their face value. But if you have multiples of the same number, it only counts once. So there's no difference between having one five in your hand and seven fives left in your hand. And that, I think, ought to inform your plays a little bit. So junking a five from your hand might just be allowing your opponent to play a six for example. And if you sit on the fives instead, or if you pass and don't play and do something else without getting into too much detail, that might be the cleverer play. It's by Reiner Knizia, so I'm willing to, willing to give it another shot. We also all agreed, we played it with three, we also all agreed that Llama would be better with more. It would definitely lead to a little bit more dynamism and a little bit more uh, unpredictability about where cards were going to end up in a, in, a, in a positive way. I will say that I think that my th- my retheming was a tremendous success, especially given that the theming of the original version of Llama consists literally of a sentence fragment that says the Llamas command you to get rid of your cards, which on the face of it I think is actually also creepy. What, why are these Llamas telling you to do something? Do they keep you up at night whispering instructions into your ear? Have they ever told you to kill? 
These are these are important questions that I think these, that, that Reiner Kinsey needs to address right now. I agree. These are things that need to be answered. This all being said, even if those decisions are there, it's still much not much of a game. And it's at the top of the hotness and it's being nominated. I just want to make, make sure people know that there's not much of a game there. Do not like order this thinking that there's going to be this really interesting. It's a small card game yeah, with llamas on it. I, I don't know. I don't think that people are going to be expecting the next Vital Asserta. Oh, you never know. I just want to make sure that they understand that this is a very light, small decision, decision space game. Sure. That's yeah. terrible. And that was Llama. On the topic of the SDJ, I actually had the opportunity to try the remaining game on the SDJ list that I hadn't tried called Just One. So Llama is one of the, the things nominated for the Spiel des Jahres, nominally the game of the year, but really it's like intro game of the year. They've been getting later and later over, over the time. I commented on Twitter, you know, in 95, they give it to El Grande. And now I think El Grande is too heavy for even their Kennerspiel, which is their Cognoscenti Award. They've really pitched themselves as sort of the very, very, very introductory family level game. And that's fine. That's fine. It's just I, I don't understand why it still has any currency in the circles in which we travel, given how it's pitched itself. But so there's Llama. There's Werewords, which I played under very subpar conditions but and hated. I don't know if I would like it more if I played it under better conditions, uh, but I'm not particularly inclined to try. And then there's Just One. Just One is by far my pick of the litter. And was a reasonably engageable, co- uh, engaging co-op word game. Uh, it imports something from categories whereby basically you're trying to clue someone into a word using one-word clues. But if multiple people give the same clue, those clues are nuked and they never see that clue. So you're trying to think of a clue that is sufficiently uh, sufficiently clear that will lead them to the conclusion, but you can't pick something that somebody else will pick. And it led to some very interesting groupthink about how to structure your clues. There were some instances where we all knew that there was an obvious clue to give, and so none of us took it, where if one person had taken it, it would have been better. There were situations where we would overthink things and think of something that was really, really, really hyper-obscure, only to see that somebody else had chosen the same hyper-obscure reference, and so both of those got removed. Anyway, it was fun. It was quick. It was engaging. It was cute. It was more immediately satisfying than Llama, and it was definitely more fun than Werewords. So I'll, I might give Llama another shot, but just one is definitely something that is worth keeping around for a very, very quick, very, very accessible uh, word-type games for those kinds of things. All and right. I, Mark and I got to play Red Alert, the new Command & Colors space game. It's a fantastic... Command & Colors usually never misses... Had a great time playing it. They had some very interesting cards, the command cards that you play. It's one of these uh, command colors is where you have a hand of cards and the board is divided up into right, left, and center flanks. And you're playing cards to activate units in those flanks. And some of the uh, the command cards are very interesting, the way they're written and the, the theme behind them. But I feel as though the space theme wasn't captured very well. They didn't really go with it very very far. Like, uh, if you played Battle Lore 2nd Edition, you could easily fall into this with no hassle whatsoever because they really didn't change very much. We had this moment while we were setting it up where we thought some of the space minis looked pretty good. They're all they're all high quality. Uh, we, we basically like half the sculpts. We like the green ships. We don't like the red ships. But we were both thinking, why would we do this rather than Battle Lore 2nd Edition? But very quickly on in the game, we were very surprised in Red Alert about how good the cards are. Some of, A lot of the command cards and a lot of the combat cards, which are just two separate decks, 
are pretty evocative of a space theme and are very interesting. And there's this sort of economy built on top of the game where some things that were normal in Commands and Colors games, like Battle Back or a variety of other functions, now cost a resource that you have to spend very carefully. So that part was cool. The economy of managing that was neat and the cards were neat. I agree with you, though, that overall, in terms of a sci-fi theme, it doesn't do a great job. For example, the whole notion of units blocking line of sight in a, in a space context is kind of ridiculous. The notion of multiple units not being able to coexist or move past each other, also kind of strange. I don't know a whole lot about the space, but my understanding is that the space is pretty big. And so at the scale of the game, it seems a little bit ridiculous. Uh, it's mostly the following up. Like, it was just, much, you know, it was exactly like the cavalry unit. Like, it's, oh, here's your destroyers, and if you win, then they retreat, then you can attack again. And it's just like, it's like, it's just right out of the rule book. And I just thought, really, they couldn't have come up with something a little more unique for a space theme. It was kind of disappointing. Having seen what Richard Borg has done with the system in Commands and Colors Napoleonics, so we both love Battlelord Second Edition. I prefer Commands and Colors Napoleonics which is a a core Borg title, and he's done some really interesting things to situate it in the Napoleonic era. Units behave like Napoleonic units in a number of key ways, even though it's still a very, very light war game. In Red Alert, it doesn't feel very spacey. You know, we don't know what space combat's going to look like, of course, but nonetheless, it didn't do a very good job of evoking the theme. So all of that having been said, we were very surprised at how much we enjoyed it, it is a very good Commands and Colors game, probably not top tier. The, the story with the Commands and Colors system is very much the same, uh, I think, as the story of the Quartermaster General system. If you don't want to try them all, if you're not going to be a super completionist about these things, pick the setting that you like the most and stick with that one, and you're probably going to be well served. That having been said, Red Alert doesn't do a whole heck of a lot with its space theme, and that, that feels a bit disappointing. But I was surprised at how much I liked it, and I, w- I am going to try some of the later scenarios just to see if some of the more complicated setups or different fleet compositions, the army building rules help to sell the setting a little bit more. But as it is, I agree with you, I'll probably stick with Battle or Second Edition and Commands and Colors Napoleonics. All right, that was Red Alert by Richard Borg and PSC Games. Sorry, but there's I'd, I'd gone back to put all my, you know, designers Nobody and, cares. and producers in. Nobody cares. And why that didn't happen, more Nobody on cares. that later. Nobody cares. Mark, what else did you play this week? Red Alert was mine. Played Fireball Island, The Curse of Volcar. Oh, that's and, too bad. Yeah, I, I was curious to try it. You know, I, I, I don't like the work that Rob Davia has been doing at Restoration Games. I, I don't, I haven't enjoyed the final products, and I felt that they haven't really done a good job of either being a straight reprint or of pulling it more in a slightly more gamerly direction. It's kind of in the uh, sort of a murky middle that doesn't really satisfy either. And I will admit that a straight reprint of Viable Island probably would have pleased nobody. But in Fireball Island, you have a hand of two cards, you play one of them, and that's how far you move. And that's more or less it. Now, you do get to spend more time playing with the marbles and the cool molded board and flicking things around and so forth. But let me say that there are far better ways to play with toys in the context of playing a board game. You absolutely do get to play with fun toys while playing Fireball Island. But there are better games with better toys out there. Any, Pretty much any good dexterity game, I think, will do you better. If you really want to do roll and move, which it kind of sort of is, then by all means go and do that. I would much rather play with HeroScape or something where I still get to play with my dolls and big chunky plastic pieces while I'm going pew-pew and making weird noises. The scoring system was fine. There's some take that. Anyway, nothing about Fireball Island, the new version, really struck me as particularly noteworthy. It was reasonably quick, but didn't really stand out. Not enough determinism, not enough 
choices, not even enough control over the cool toys that you were playing with. So visually impressive, but not much more than that. And that was the new Fireball Island of the Curse of Volcar. I definitely want to try it. I really shouldn't say anything negative about it because I haven't played it yet, but I really feel it's one of those things where after the first five minutes, you you know, you'll grow very tired of the toys and, and see why you'd rather play something else. I was lucky enough to play Hansa Teutonica again. Love this game. Still love this game. Still, every time I play it, I realize why I think it is still one of my favorite games of all time. It is really the a super tight, aggressive, non-confrontationally uh, aggressive. You know what I mean? It's just expected right from the beginning. It's part of the strategy. It's a great game where you're placing pieces out, pushing other, you know, trying to control, pushing other people out, giving them extra action. So it's not hurting them. It's actually helping them. And I just love everything about it. And that is Hansa Teutonica. Watching people realize the joys of the system is great in Hansa Teutonica. A little bit like Tigers and Euphrates, although the confrontation in both of those two games is very, very different. Uh, Tigers and Euphrates is a little more in your face with respect to confrontation. But, you know, you set up the board of Hansa Teutonica, it looks dull, uh, incredibly dull. You start the explanation skipping the theme because the theme is irrelevant and they're like, hey, whatever, I'm putting cubes out. And then like, oh, that's how displacement works. Interesting. And then a few turns in, these light bulbs start going off. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. And that's Hansa Teutonica by... Andreas Setting and Z-Man Games, at least in the previous uh, previous ones. It's sadly out of print. There have been news about a Chicago mobster-themed reprint. We'll see when and if that materializes. I actually think I'll prefer the themeless version than the Chicago mob theme. I don't know. We'll see. Played a game of Space Corp. Space Corp was put up by GMT Games last year, and it's by John H. Butterfield, who really is one of the pioneers of solo wargaming. He released a game called Ambush. With a, sorry, Ambush! Back in the day. And Space Corp is designed, it really seems like it was designed primarily for solo play. And I played a couple rounds solo, but one of the key uh, hooks to Space Corp is that there are three different maps representing three different eras. First, there's Mariners, where you're basically settling Mars. And then there's the uh, the rest of the solar system in uh, the, the next stage. And then finally, you're colonizing deep space in like Alpha Centauri and stuff in the, in the third era. So I played a competitive game with the first two eras. We called it quits after the first two eras because really the luck of the draw was being punishingly unsatisfying. The way the game works is you go and you explore different sites. And after you've explored the sites, you might be able to build there. But the quality of the sites varies wildly all the way from Bonanza to not much of anything, or even later on to, here, get punched in the face. And the problem is, in order to move past that area, you might say, oh, okay, well, then just take your lumps and move on. The way the movement system works is, you either have to be moving from a building or to a building. So if you're in deep space and you find a terrible building site, you can't just go further and try to find a better building site. You have to build something there or go back home. Either way, it feels unsatisfying, which is unfortunate because the core system of Space Corp, the way card play works, the way you draft off of other people's infrastructure, the fundamental systems are so clean and really quite enjoyable. The problem is when you're playing competitively and you see the same person getting hosed over and over with crappy explore sites and someone else in this case, namely me, getting the compounding benefits and compounding interest of starting off with really great sites that allowed me to bootstrap to tremendous other things. And so that part was crushingly disappointing. I'm probably going to play it again solo because the, the the challenges there are slightly different. The AI is very clean and it just mostly pops up in random places and does things. So that's less of an issue there. There's just a question of can you ramp up fast enough? And there the luck of the draw won't be quite as socially unpleasant. But 
Space Corp was very disappointing for everyone at the table, really, because we love the theme of space exploration. It's a lot more accessible than something like High Frontier, but still has uh, a lot of detail and texture. It's just that detail and texture is about how your friends have been hosed by random number generation. So that was our experience with Space Corp. As I say, I'm probably going to have more to say when I play a, a full game from start to finish solo, but multiplayer did not seem like the ideal configuration. Mark introduced me to ray guns and rocket ships. It's this very interesting little skirmishy type spaceship combat boarding party game, which they do a great job where you have to decide how much you want to punish a particular player, but still keep him in the game enough that he can damage the other players in the game. You don't want to like pick on one person too much because they're just going to, you know, attack you back or the other person that you're not attacking is going to remain too powerful. Also in this game, the turn order is very important. You have to see if you're going to be, uh, you know, uh, activating first next turn or before another player. And that will, you know, dictate where you're going to leave your guys on their ship or your ship facing. Overall, I think they did a great job of doing this, like this space skirmishy type game. And I think it'll work with almost any player account. I agree with you that the turn order is so consequential, but the virtue of the turn order in Reagan's rocket ships is that it's shifting all the time. And so you can plot things out and take advantage of it, unlike something like Wildlands or something like GKR, which both had serious turn order problems where it was a little more fixed and you were always dealing with the fact that the person to your right was going before you or after you or, or, or what have you. Uh, the the rules in Ray Guns and Rocket Ships, I will defend. There are endless rules questions on Board Game Geek about how to exit a ship or how to enter a ship, which is bizarre because I find it relatively straightforward. And, and no, we didn't have any serious problems with it. We needed to be reminded because there's a bit of an asymmetry. But the one thing that I think is very problematic in Ray Guns and Rocket Ships, and this is the second play, and I agree with you that it's a very successful skirmishy multiplayer type thing, which is a very difficult genre to do well. Some of the card text is borderline unforgivable in terms of how vague it is. I'll just pick one for example, and this is really an instance of why you need tighter editing. It was a card that says your crew members can only be damaged on a melee roll of seven or eight. Now, there are two ways to parse this, and it's purely a function of emphasis, and this is just how English works. You could, you could parse it as your crew members can only be damaged on a melee roll of seven to eight, in which case they're immune to ranged combat. Or you could say crew members can only be damaged on a melee roll of seven to eight, in which case ranged combat is not affected. And sure enough, we looked online to see what the designer said. And what the, the designer gave the third answer, which was, oh, actually, this card applies to their resilience to ranged combat as well, which left me banging my head on the table because that is not an open interpretation based on the text on the card. Anyhow, and there are a number of cards like this, none quite so bad as that. With that in mind, and especially if you're willing to just play fast and make mistakes... I think it's some solid fun, and Ray Guns and Rocket Ships does a number of things very, very neatly, and you get to have fun little moments, and no one's feelings get too badly hurt when they're being pounded on, especially since, as the victim, you have some degree of control over how damage occurs, and mostly, uh, points are just from kills. You don't get you don't get points for surviving, so who cares? It's all about maximum carnage, which, you know, a lot of clever things were done to minimize the problems in the other genre. I just wish the some of the rules presentation were a little tighter, specifically with respect to the special effects. But I'm still having fun with Reagans and Rocket Ships. I'm I, having looked at some of the scenarios. I'm definitely not interested in them because many of them, many of the scenarios, boil down to the winner is the last person standing, just blow up all the other ships, which does not sound appealing to me. Don't build in player elimination and don't l run away from your clever design innovations of encouraging maximum carnage. 
by knocking people out of, the, out of the play. So playing the points definitely seems like the better way to go about it. But maybe there are some scenarios that we're going to give a try, and we'll probably have more to say uh, later if, when and if we, we get those things. So I'm, I'm very glad you enjoyed Ray Guns and Rocket Ships. Finally, I'd just like to say I had a very uh, packed weekend of gaming of games that we've already reviewed in depth. Uh, great game of Food Chain Magnate, which we reviewed in episode 30. Seal Team Flicks, the only game that matters, we reviewed in episode 31. Street Masters in episode 32. That was a good three-episode run, by the way. Food Chain Magnate, Seal Team Flicks, and Street Masters, one after the other. Those, those are some solid reviews. And uh, Kalamala, great game, continue to, continuing to win friends, which we reviewed in episode 62. I, I just want to say this, though, as a sort of uh, a summary of some of my experiences. I played an unpublished prototype, and I'm not going to go into too much detail about that was because it was in a very, very early, early form. But some of the design ideas showed a great deal of promise, and I very much appreciate the sort of overall project that, it, that it's going towards. And I had the distinct pleasure of being involved in, and I'm, I'm going to qualify involved in later, uh, with three of, honestly, I think the best developers in the industry. Design work is super important. And these three uh, gentlemen are actually very, very good designers in their own right. Uh, specifically, Chris Cheslick of Asmati Games, Rob Cedar, and Eric Royce of, well, kind of greater than games in that he published Bird Island with them. And honestly, it was, it was, it was a flashback to some of my earlier experiences in university, to be frank, where you feel like you're in the presence of people who are roughly five times smarter than you are, and you don't really know how you can contribute. And on those rare moments where you're able to say something and anyone nods, you feel like you're 20 feet tall. I hadn't felt like that in a long time. And it was very, very satisfying to just sit and watch these minds work and ping off each other. It was honestly intimidating and exhilarating. And it really makes me feel good about the future of the hobby. I got to hear about their, the project that they're working on, and they all sound fabulous. Uh, three really great minds in the hobby gaming sphere, and it was just an absolute joy to be able to play games with them and to hear them talk about games, and it was really, really, really impressive. Because, quite frankly, my skill set, insofar as I have any, you know, being a critic is one thing. It's very easy to talk about, well, I did, didn't like this, I, I like this. But trying to fix things, trying to be pro productive and proactive and talk about, well, maybe you could just change the systems this way or these other things. That's an entirely different skill set, and I have endless respect for people who are able to do that. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. One of the things that I find very unpleasant and unfortunate about the rise of Kickstarter one-person shops, where a single individual is, is going to be designing and publishing their own games, is I feel that external development work is really going by the wayside in many instances. So... I had a great weekend of gaming in that, and I just wanted to give a shout-out to the, to the past games that I've reviewed and also to three excellent, fabulous people who do wonderful work, namely Chris Cheslick, Rob Cedar, and Eric Royce. They are people to watch, and any time their name is attached to any project, I am always eager to give it a shot because those guys know what they are doing. All right, those are the games we played this week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. Let me get this big bus out of the way. So like I was saying, I got up early to finish up my paperwork on this and Mark likes to put all the designers and publishers on all the games we talk about. So I thought I would save him some time. I wanted to talk about Kadama 3D. Now Kadama has come out before. It's this very interesting art piece where you're building this tree and it, you know, you score points based on how you place your cards. This is going to be a three-dimensional model where you're sticking in, but guess what? It's been suspended. So I said enough is enough, what's going on here? Because I read some of the comments. And this Kadama 3D was put up by Travis R. Chance. 
he was he and it was under the president of Indie Cards and Games. But Travis R. Chance also is the president of Colossal Games, which we've also talked about because they've put out ten games now, mainly Western Legend, Menzo, Eclipse Second Edition, and the Butterfly game, Papillon, that we've already talked about that has also been suspended. Put put out is a little too strong. That that that, that I think is how they ran afoul of it. They have True. launched those They've projects. Launched those projects. On top of that, there's yet another colossal com- uh, name that they've put out four games, like Terrors of London, uh, Hunt for the Avengers. Not huge games, but they've also put out four games. So they have things on the go. Indie cards and boards have put out four games, uh, or like we said, have you know the. Uh, Corcoro Avenue of Kadama, uh, he, the Travis Worthington is the CEO of that of that company. What, what I'm all getting to is these are all linked together because because there's been a merger of some companies: Stronghold, Action Phase Games, and Indie Cards and Boards have all banded together in this one huge company, and Action Phase Games is the originator of Eon's End. They've also put out. Uh, Dreamwell, and they're also the originator of the original Kadama game. And now there are expansions mixed throughout all of these different. You know, what I mean, there's no, they're not all under the same company. And I'm think I'm wondering if this is why, you know, Kickstarter is putting a stop to some of these because the Kadama 3D has just recently, you know, like four days ago, been suspended, and yet they've they've said that they're going to put this Butterfly game out again on the 30th of this month. So who knows what's going to happen? This just seems maybe they're trying to crack down on these these companies that have like several different accounts that have you know you know five to ten ongoing projects all at the same time. I just thought it was odd that they have so many different companies with so many different games all intertwined with each other, all having you know games on the go, and we'll see how this you know all shifts out at the end. Yeah, that could be the downside of consolidation, right? These are all. It's not just Asmodee that's been gobbling people up. There have been lots of mergers and consolidation. And in this new era of Kickstarter maybe trying to enforce some of its policies, albeit somewhat irregularly, that could be ways that these new shops that have a lot of different imprints could run afoul of that. And you're right. We talked about this before. They they say they're going to be relaunching Papillon by the end of the month, but who knows if they're going to get away with that. And by get away with that, I mean... Will Kickstarter let them do that? I'm not accusing them of, of, of doing anything corrupt. I just wish that Kickstarter, very much like lots of other tech websites, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Kickstarter, I'm in favor of clear policies applied consistently. And I can certainly be sympathetic to all the people who've run afoul of this recent purge of Kickstarter thinking, well, wait, this always flew before or lots of other companies seem to be doing the same. Why is this changing? So, Well, that's what I was hoping to find. That's what right. I was hoping to see. It's like, oh, this got suspended too. Well, maybe they're, you know, either they're putting it across the board. They're, you know, suspending this because of the same thing. But then it turns out it's the same person. It's the same group of companies. And it just seemed odd. Yeah. So more to follow. There's going to be an upcoming expansion to Endeavor. There was the reprint of Endeavor by Burnt Island Games that was very successful and very visually appealing. And now there's going to be an expansion to a game that was originally published uh, quite a while ago. But now there's going to be the Age of Expansion expansion. So see what they did there? Wow. You see how they did that? That's clever. Yeah. Not a whole lot of detail about the specifics, but they say there's going to be an entirely new set of buildings and a new set of cards for the game of Endeavor. 
I, for one, hope they try to mess with the formula more rather than less, because as it is in Endeavor, most of the time what you're doing is just gobbling a bunch of icons of the same type and running up tracks. And this kind of predates the tracks on tracks on tracks uh, fad that I, I, I don't really like. And in Endeavor, it's less obnoxious than many. But I'm hoping that there's some truly novel stuff, some interesting cards, and, and some more substance and dynamism to the fundamental system, because although Endeavor is perfectly pleasant, I, I think that maybe it would be interesting to see the system do something else. So that's going to be the Age of Expansion, expansion, which is going to be released later this year. So I'm looking forward to at least seeing what they do with that. So there's going to be another company putting out a Star Wars... What, what was I talking about? Walker, it's okay. It's okay. Oh. Do, I, do I need to get the defibrillator or the EpiPen? Second, what was I talking about? Oh, yes. Pandemic Rapid Response by Z-Man Games. This is going to be a real-time pandemic game, so that should be interesting. It won't be none of this, not yet another tool to stop down on the alpha gamer, right? Put a time limit on, less chance for people to tell you what to do. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they implement that. And this is by Kane Klenko, who uh, – so Matt, Matt Leacock is not involved in the project, at least not as a credited designer. Kane Klenko has done some interesting stuff. He did flip ships. He also designed – the real-time dice game Fuse, which uh, we we rather enjoy on occasion and, and is in your collection. And what's interesting to me, in addition to all this, is the fact that in the United States, it's going to be a Target exclusive, which is pretty weird. Only in the States? I mean, we're going to get in Canada? There, there are going to be – it's going to be sold in Canada and in Europe and in other places, obviously, in more standard distribution chains. But in the United States, it's going to be Target exclusive. Oh, usually they do like a one-year exclusive and then we get it. We'll see. That would be interesting. That is the news and why it really doesn't matter. Now on to our topic of the week, which is how big is your board game collection? Things that should dictate how big your collection is. Well, we believe in radical transparency here uh, in So Very Wrong About Games. That is one of the reasons why I make sure to record all our episodes while completely naked. Uh, I think our live episode is going to be a little bit problematic uh, as a result of that. But, you know, give, you, make sure, you want to make sure to give people a good show. Uh, so I thought that I would start with some numbers. I know that you don't log your collection on BoardGameGeek with the same level of spreadsheet assiduousness that I do. But I thought that this might be a little illustrative to give some context, at least where I'm coming from. So I've got 690 games logged as own on BoardGameGeek, which I think is up to date, of which 360 are expansions. So really what we're talking about is 330. Because the way BoardGameGeek logs things, if you have a single promo card, that counts as a game owned. And if you've logged that promo card as owned, then it counts as, as, as an entire game. So basically I've got 330 separate games and then about as many expansions total. But they're all crammed into the, the, the main box anyhow. Now, I know somebody, uh, one of my friends back in Boston owns 1,020, of which 450 are expansions. And for a long time, he was sort of my benchmark of what a huge collection looks like, you know. And uh, so effectively, that's 570 games and another 450 expansion. Uh, Then I moved to Kingston, and there's someone else of our mutual acquaintance uh, who has more games than both of us put together, uh, namely 1,000 games and 610 expansions besides. So that's 1,610 after expansions. One of the reasons why I like to to, – why I wanted to go through this is just to to mention for context – no matter how crazy you think someone's board game collection is, there's someone whose collection is way, 
way bigger. I remember once when I was doing an in-person trade with somebody in Boston, actually, and he was all like, come, let, let me let me show you my collection. And maybe he just built a custom shelf or something, and he was very proud of it. But I had seen what the size of his collection was on BoardGameGeek. He had like 150 games. It's like, that's that's great, buddy. Uh, you know, you do you. That's wonderful. I'm sure you've got games that you love a great deal, and it's great that you're proud of a collection. I don't need to go down in your basement to be awed by the spectacle of a collection of that size. Uh, so I don't... I mentioned these numbers not to show off, but again, just to give some degree of context for what we're talking about here. That having been said, Walker has recently undergone a rather significant lifestyle change that has caught some people's attention. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I justify my collection by calling it two different things. See, I have something what I call my active collection, <laughs> and then I have my. Hundreds? I, I I don't think it's a thousand. Maybe hundreds of games that are in boxes throughout Kingston that I have a mental block about getting rid of for some reason. I remember several years ago I did a little bit of a purge and it was quite a hurdle to let those go. I don't know why this is a problem. Maybe because, you know, I just I just when you're, you know, having a bad day or, you know, you everyone has a nice shelf that they display their board games. And it just gives you this feeling of satisfaction and calm when you look at them. Well, not everyone. So look, even people who own board games don't necessarily do this with board games. But for many people, especially, you know, middle-class North Americans who are able to sustain a certain amount of, of disposable income and consumer goods, are able to derive some degree of pleasure from their stored possessions that they aren't actively using. Putting it that way, putting it so starkly, sometimes I think sounds terrible, but I don't think that it is terrible. I don't think it necessarily means you're a terribly materialistic jerk or anything like that. It's, uh, you know, whether you want to put it in terms of Marie Kondo, who's very popular now, whether it's, you know, you hold it and it sparks joy or what have you. But I will say this. uh, The... People collect books, people collect, uh, they used to, well, some people still collect music, especially in vinyl, and uh, people used to collect media. I still collect DVDs, talked about that before, and I derive considerable joy from being able to look over my bookshelf of books and think about what was happening in my life when I read them. So even if I'm never going to read them again, I still like having them around. They're physically attractive as well, and there's no real strong stigma culturally speaking, for people who own lots and lots and lots of books and would never get rid of books, even if they're never going to read them again. There is a stronger stigma attached to board games, I think generally because it's not as mainstream and the hobby is not well regarded, but I think that the same principle equally applies. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other factors and constraints going on, and we'll talk about that in a very little bit, but that was, that's just the sort of brief kind of defense in the outset. So anyway, for the, the recent change... I was told that I have two 5x5 Calyx. I did a move and I was told by my significant other that one of the Calyx was now going to be a display shelf and not have any board games in it. So that would mean that my collection would have to be halved again, which was fine. So usually what I what I did about a year ago or so, I decided that my active collection would be 100 strong and I would you know get rid of games when I brought new games in. So on this on this new purge, I pretty well said if anyone else had it, then I would get rid of it. I would I would I just condensed everything down on one shelf, and whatever didn't fit would have to go. And that's pretty well how I how I gauged it. It's games that I knew I was going to play again, games I enjoyed, and if I just hadn't played it in a while or someone else had it, then it had to had to go. 
So I think it's important to identify, first of all, the sort of blocks on growing a collection or, or, or reasons to, to reduce a collection because they're going to vary by person. So, for example, for a long time, I only had one primary gaming partner and I was not able to get a lot of people around the table. And so for a long time, even as I was building my collection, if the, if the game was best with four or more, it was effectively an impossible conceit. You know, that, 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 that just was not a plausible thing to hit the table, and so I just would just not seek out or even, even try to consume much media about games of that player count. Now it's gone quite the opposite. If, it's, if it tops out at three or if it's only a two-player game, we've talked about this before, we're not going to see it hit the table, and so I, I'm not seeking out games of that player count much anymore. Similarly, if you have a regular gaming partner and you know that the overwhelming majority of the time they're, they're either going to be the person you're playing with or a possible person that you're playing with, and they despise a certain kind of game, that's going to influence things too. Back when I lived in Boston, roughly 90% of the time if I were playing a, go- a game, there would be one person there who hated all dexterity games. So I didn't get to dexterity games. I might have had one or two even while I was uh, maintaining a, a collection for the times when it was available. Now, that's not the case. We do know somebody who loathes dexterity games, uh, one of the Louis, but he's not always around. If you hated dexterity games, though, on the other hand, I'd probably have a lot fewer dexterity games. But you love dexterity games because you're a person of discernment, taste, and refinement. Exactly. But there are things that I know that you hate. And specifically, if it's a two-player game and I know it involves something that you hate, well then, that definitely means that it's probably not going to join my collection, even though I've got lots and lots and lots of games that I'll probably never play again. But if at least I know now that going forward it's never going to hit the table, I can be a little bit more sane. Yep, I have that topic as well. How many in your group or how many do you often play with? Same sort of thing. I had, you know, I only used to play with one group and I'd buy games specifically for that group. Even if games I knew I didn't like, I would still buy it because it was a Saturday day group and there was uh, many people there that liked uh, combat, conflict, attack games. And even though I was growing tired of them, I would still pick them up because I knew that they would love them. Sure. I think, though, that sometimes I think that that's a reasonable defense mechanism because I personally find, given that we both like variety, I mean, look, we, we, we go out and we consume new games, even though there are tre- tremendous games that we play any day of the damn week, whether it's Hounds of Teutonica, whether it's Psychic Infinities, things like that. We would play those every day, probably for weeks and weeks and weeks before getting tired of them. But we still go out and seek new games and play lots of really bad games, not just because we want to tell you, dear friends and neighbors, about it, but also because we crave variety and we love seeing new systems and we love seeing systems iterate. When it's a genre that you hate, sometimes that additional variety, at least like, well, it's another fighty game, at least does this thing differently. That's a great way, I think, to ease the pain in many instances. All right. My other, I know my next topic is do your friends buy games? So same Saturday group, uh, no one else owned any games. Well, one person had like one or two card games that really, that we never played. So I'm not even going to count that. So I was the only one purchasing games. So this is why my collection uh, grew so large at the beginning. Uh, It's not growing as quickly anymore, but that's why I have so many older games. So do do you need to buy as many games if other people are buying them? You really should make sure that, you know, it's being equally shared amongst the group. So it's not being a burden to one particular person. And you really should be aware of this. Like, say, if if you are in a group and you're not buying any games, and that's not a problem, but just be aware that someone is is taking that burden on and spending this money to buy games for the group to play. And either, either A, uh, 
buy one or two yourself, or B, throw him some money because he's the one that's, you know, going out of pocket so you can have fun. They, they're the one. They are the one, yes. Yeah, so it's weird. I, I don't know. This is an issue that's come up before, and I honestly don't know if I agree with that stated position. Now, I definitely think that to a certain extent it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You and I are the kinds of people, whether we had a podcast or not, that would go out and acquire new games. At what rate? Obviously, that depends. But it is something that we would do independently. And so I don't know that it's fair to offload a sort of burden or expectation on other people who profit from it. Because it's absolutely the case that a number of people in our social circle who also like to try new things profit from our impulse to grow our collections. But we're not doing it out of a sense of obligation towards them. We're doing it because we want to. And so I don't know that it's reasonable to say that they owe us anything ever. It's true. But if you, I, while you're saying that, I just say if we put it in a different context. Say if someone really enjoyed cooking. They love making new dishes. They love doing all sorts of this type of thing. Say if you came over and ate at their house all the time because they always made extra food. Same sort of premise. Do you not feel as though you are slightly obligated to you know, reciprocate in any way. That's, that's actually a really good point. Uh, that's, that's, that's well put. It, it's weird. It, it, there it's a little bit different because it's an ephemeral event. And there are certain social expectations with respect to that ephemera, and it's not a physical object. If a board game were more of a physical object that people tended to share, like for, and this actually is dovetailing very nicely with your point about trying not to get games that other people have. And you've been very, very good at that because now we're in a relatively stable situation where you and I get lots of games, and we also know other people who get a smaller number of games proportionally. And you're getting very, very good at saying, well, I know this person has the game, and I know it can borrow it from them, so I'm not going to do it. We should be much more proactive as gamers of borrowing and lending out elements of our collection so as to reduce this overall expenditure and burden. And that, I think, would, would, would help more than the notion that simply because you're not the one getting the games, you should kick cash to somebody. Because I still have the physical object. I don't think it's reasonable to expect financial subsidization. Similarly, it's, it would be a little bit crude in your example of a dinner party or something like that of saying, everybody bring me 10 bucks. No, no. Like, well, it's, you, a, it's a big difference of of asking for it and just offering it as, you know, at, and not, you know, I'm not saying anyone's expected, but you should just say sort of just offer it as, as part of, you know, I said, I know you didn't ask for it, but I'm playing all these games. Why don't you take $20 to pay, purchase your, the next one? I'm definitely not talking about the game you're playing right then, but just, you know, like a future purchase or something like that. Here I think is a better way to approach it. Specifically because, we're, you know, many people have fewer hang-ups than I do about money between friends. But money between friends is always a, a sore spot. Rough. for uh, Yeah, it's, it's pretty rough. I think a better way to look at it is the burden that I take on voluntarily is acquiring lots of new games. And the burden that my friends who don't get games take on is they tend to have a little bit less agency about what we play. Oh, I thought it was the fact that they had to play with you was theirs. Sure, that too. They have to deal with my stupid face and the terrible things that come from my stupid dumb face. And it's also the case that they just generally uh, wield less agency. Like, they don't maintain a collection, so if I show up with two games, chances are excellent that we're going to end up playing one of those two things. And, I, of course, I try to be conscientious about it, but I think that that's the, that's the, the dividend that I get. Not only do I get to, get to keep the thing, but it's also the case that I get to exert a little bit more control over what's getting played, and that's sort of the prerogative of the collection hoarder. So I don't know that anyone else has any burdens to, to do anything other than being accommodating of that 
of, of that expectation. And I don't know if it's an explicit arrangement or people understand that that's what's going on, but that's certainly what I've seen shake out. And I think that that's compensation enough. Anyhow. All right. Shoot off on another quick leg. You've, you, you've, you've broadened my perspective. I'm going to have to think about it. Gotcha. All right. Now, to shoot off on another quick leg, that's not exactly part of it. But I'm wondering, in this little genre that we have that is board games, it is expanding in a great way. Not comparatively to other genres, of course, like, you know, movies or whatever, you know, but in, in our little niche, it is. I would say there's far more variety going on in the board game sphere than there is in, say, is, Hollywood filmmaking. It is, but I'm saying that the number of people involved is is, sure. is hugely lower. Yes, yes. But yes. I'm wondering if this uh, over-purchasing and multiple purchasing is required to maintain this growth that we're seeing right now. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the growth is because there are uh, tons of people with these massive collections and groups that are doing multiple purchases and have multiple copies of a game. I don't know. That's an interesting question. Is this the sign of a hobby that's expanding or is this the sign of a bubble that is being maintained by a small number of people? I sincerely don't know. That'd be another, another topic for sure. Now, another way to sort of uh, reduce your purchasing is does your local store or library also keep a collection, right? So, you know, check out your local store. Usually they keep quite a large library or if they have places to play or even uh, libraries in our town. I've seen other towns, they're starting to get a collection as well. So check out what they have. And these are ways that you don't have to purchase as many games. Board game cafes as well. If you've got a good local board game cafe, especially if storage is tight, one of the things that, that we should emphasize right off, right, right at the stop, we, we live in, in an environment where storage space is not particularly hard to come by. Uh, you know, re- but where you live can seriously impact that. I moved from uh, a suburb of Cambridge to downtown Toronto, and that obviously exerted a considerable pressure on how much room I had for things. And there's this huge topic that I don't really want to get too much into because that would take us in a direction that I don't think is appropriate for the podcast of when the people you're living with, be, the, be you romantically involved with them or not, start exerting pressure on you to make changes with respect to how much storage space there are. Because there, there was an observation by George Carlin, which I'm paraphrasing here, which is your crap is stuff. But their their stuff is crap. And it's bizarre how myopic you get with respect to things like clutter and storage space when it's something that you don't care about. And I've heard lots of stories on Reddit and elsewhere about people who have serious relationship friction by virtue of lack of storage space. One virtue that we have in our situation is we live in a place where storage space is not that difficult to come by. Now, that's not true for everybody, but by and large, it's, it's, it's much more true here than it's been in other cities that I've lived. And... You just have to, like, unlike collecting books or movies, collecting board games is requires a lot of space. And so if you're able to offload it elsewhere, whether it's through a library or a board game cafe or whatever, that's definitely something to consider and something I would, I would definitely try to keep in mind if we were in a different environment. All right. So what I feel this all boils down to is how often do you actually play? I, I'm, I'm, I've re- massively reduced the number of times I play per week. That being said, some people only play per month. So you really have to, you know, feel it out. If you're, if you're not playing that often, that's, you know, that will really dictate how many board games you should have in your collection. I think that is a legitimate criterion, but I, again, I struggle with this issue of whether, how irrational is it to acquire, own, and keep a board game 
that you practically never or perhaps even have never played. Because I can think of all these other exogenous values of holding on to things that are either purely sentimental or kept just because they're physically attractive. Like weird little statuettes. You never play weird little statuettes. I never I never play a game of lots of things that I own purely for aesthetic value. And board games have aesthetic value. And so I I I don't know whether it's 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 irresponsible and illegitimate to say well you're never going to play that so you have a strong obligation to get rid of it. Or I don't know if I'm just being an apologist for somebody who has hundreds of games in his basement. No, Drew, that's that's going outside of the box, though, for sure. That, I think that's almost a whole different subject, right? I'm saying within the box of board gaming, it's how many game, how many times, uh, how many times a week you play, or how many times a month you play. But for sure, I'm 100 on your page. Outside of the box of board gaming, there are tons of other vices that are much, much worse. Uh, board games that are taken care of will last forever. Board games that are taken care of can almost be uh, resold for almost the exact, if not more value. They also can be traded for more, if not exact same value if they're taken care of. They can always be used. They can always have fun. They can always be traded and given away. In the in the larger outside box, board games are a fantastic collection and a fantastic product and always bring joy and happiness to everyone that plays them. I don't know about always. <laughs> I just, again, I don't know to what extent as somebody with hundreds and hundreds of board games in his basement, whether I have engaged in a reasonable pursuit of my own uh, satisfaction and happiness, or if I have engaged in an act of madness that I would best cheer myself off of. And these are broader questions of economics, of class, of culture. Uh, (laughs) Well, the question would be, Mark, have you ever gone to the basement and made a fort out of your board games? If not, then you're okay. So that's going to wrap it up because I have a go- I have a fort to go build. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.